You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Two quick announcements. If you live in the greater Los Angeles area, I have two speaking events coming up this week. The first one is Thursday, April 11th at 7 p.m. at the Friendship Auditorium in Los Angeles, California. It's with the Southern California Horticultural Society, where I'll be discussing gardening in a changing climate. So come by and check that out. The second one is with the Theodore Payne Foundation. Again, this is in the greater Los Angeles area. It's April 12th from 3 to 4 p.m. I believe tickets are $25 for students and $30 for everyone else. You can check them out at theaterpain.org and the Southern California Horticultural Society at socalhort.org. I will put up links to both of those in the show notes for this episode. But speaking of this episode, I'm really excited because my good friend, colleague, and lab mate, Ron Salemi, is here to talk to us about soil carbon cycling. I learn a lot from Ron because this is how we link plants to soil and carbon and climate change and CO2 emissions and all of that. It's it's this wonderful big picture ecosystem level sort of approach and it's all in that interface between plants and the soil environment. It's super interesting stuff and Ron is very passionate about it and most of all he loves teaching people about it. So this is a great conversation and I think I've talked to you enough at this point so let's just jump right into it without further ado. Here's my conversation with Ron Salemi. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Ron. How's it going, Matt? It's good. Glad to have you in the driver's seat after how many years? Four. Four. Nice. Ron is here. We're buddies. Should mention that why we're being so informal right now. We're lab mates. Ron, introduce yourself. Hi, my name's uh, Ron Salemi, PhD student at University of Illinois. And uh, yeah, I've been working with Matt for the past four years. It's been a pleasure, but we have you here today because you specialize in... Soil carbon cycling. <laughs> I think uh, between you and Mara, it's the topic of that our entire lab that I understand the least, or at least have been introduced to the most, I guess. Because it was a steep learning curve with all of your presentations and prelim proposals and all that jazz. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> probably the same way we feel about your research. And that's fair. But that's what's cool. I like our lab because we're diverse and we never really get stale on one topic from week to week. It's pretty varied. So when you say soil carbon, I mean, like, were you a geologist before this? What got you into soils and why soil carbon? Well, I was a forestry student when I did my undergrad, and I kind of just happened to fall into soil science. Um, to be honest, I started off as a hydrology major, hmm. and just the way the classes worked out, it would have taken me an extra semester to get my degree in forest hydrology, and then when I took intro soils, uh, I really enjoyed the course, and a lot of my classmates thought I was really good at explaining the material, uh, and so I Kind of just fell in love with soils at that point and, uh, huh. you know, been going with it ever since. That's really cool. I wouldn't expect 
sort of it to be accidental. I, I feel like, I don't know, geology seems like the gateway drug into that topic. But yeah, a good teacher or a good course or something can go quite a long way in changing someone's trajectory. Yeah, and uh, I went out to school at Humble State, as you know, and they had some excellent teachers there, um, yeah. like Joe Saney, the lead soil scientist at Redwood National Park, and then, you know, all the other professors were excellent as well. Joe's actually not a professor, he was just a lecturer. Yeah, but I mean, that's someone who... Had tons of hands-on. That's on. what they do, yeah. is like, that's they're there to For sure. tell you about a subject really well, which is cool. And again, from an outsider's lo- looking in point of view... When you say soil, that's like this big topic. It's it's what coats the planet other than water, right? Right. And I don't know, to me it sounds really intimidating because it's not like you can put goggles on and dive beneath and, and look around like you can in the ocean. It's, it's a literal black box because it's so insulated from our ability to look at it. So it seems like a big topic to get into and be like, I like soils. What about them? So where where did where did that kind of lead you, or why that's why did you go down? I've, that's exactly what attracted me to soils is that it's something that not a lot of people are super into. Uh, it's below ground, so you don't see it every single day, so you don't think about it as much as you would think about a tree or a flower. You know, yeah. those are very visible, and you know, yeah. I mean, people have hard enough a time lot easier to appreciate <laughs> recognizing those though too. So exactly. you can imagine, like you said, soil doesn't get nearly the attention it deserves. And it's also a, a nightmare to, to research as well, um, <laughs> as you know. First-hand perspective. <laughs> we'll get into that, I guess, because there's a lot of questions I have, and I'm sure a lot of people at home probably feel the same way. Is There's just so many different ways to look at this. But when you say soil carbon cycling, it makes sense to me now, having heard the trajectory of why you do what you do. But for someone listening that doesn't really put two and two together... What, what's going on with soil and then this idea of carbon being in soil? Well, soil, as you know, functions basically across like every field of, uh, you know, natural resources that you study. Yeah. Um, you know, it really affects the plants that are growing on it. And, you know, the plants affect what animals are in the area. You know, it also soil erodes into waterways. So pretty much every field that you can think of, soil plays some sort of role in it one way or another, you know, either directly or indirectly. Yeah. And so as far as carbon cycling, that's just a topic that gets a lot of funding these days, just with, uh, <laughs> Go you know, the money with, all, with all the uh, climate change. So soil carbon is super important because it's such a large sink of carbon. Other than the ocean, it's the, by far the largest uh, sink and it's, uh, got more carbon stored in it than the atmosphere or all the standing vegetation combined. Wow, that's bizarre and and really like overwhelming to think about. But again, I've only really ever walked on top of places that have soil in some extent or another. So of course it's going to play a major role in all of this. But I don't know how obvious this is. Maybe more some than to others. But where does all that carbon come from? All that carbon's coming. Th- from plants. Right. Plants are fixing the carbon through photosynthesis and then uh, either they drop their leaf litter or they have, you know, some of the photosynthates leak out through the roots, mm-hmm. um, which is an excellent source of carbon for the, you know, the underground biota. And additionally, just like their leaves fall off, there's a lot of turnover in the roots below ground, like yeah. the, the fine roots especially. So those all contribute to carbon in the soil. Hmm. 
And so backing up for a minute, though, like when we are talking about soil, obviously there's the mineral component that comes from the geology and the bedrock and whatever parent material has been brought around. But soil only goes, there's a certain definition for soil outside of like dirt or gravel or rocks and stuff like that. And, and it's, it's, it's only goes down so deep. Obviously that varies from place to place. But if you like, how do you know you're looking at soil? I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Like if you went out and scooped something up and looked at it, would you know like, oh, this is soil compared to something else? Um, well, mineral soil would be, for my research, I do start at the mineral soil. You know, I clear away the, the litter layer that's on top of the uh, soil. Since I work in forests, there's a, a little bit of a litter layer. If you're not in a forest, soil is the stuff that's directly below the grass. You know, that's the <laughs> yeah. very first thing you're hitting is mineral soil. Uh, if you are in the forest, you know, there's a layer of leaf litter, and then there's also some organic layers that are still technically uh, soil horizons, mm-hmm. or the O horizons, and that those are just the broken down leaf litter and, you know, things that you wouldn't be able to I- identify, you know, like, what components of what plants they came from. Yeah. So that would be, technically, would be the start of the soil in, in a forest, but I tend to focus just on mineral soil. Um, so I clear away that and start at the at the surface of the soil, you know, where it's... Right hard not really fluffy it's depending on where you are it's the dark color especially here in the Midwest. <laughs> yeah that's true it's almost black out yeah. here okay so that puts it into context of the organic component really is is all, all the other stuff besides that mineral component that have undergone some sort of breakdown through a lot of different activities to, to kind of make this mass of stuff we call soil yes and then in addition to uh, plant material you also have microbes in the soil that are eating all that plant material. And those are the ones that are really driving all the nutrients cycling below ground. Hmm. Um, they're consuming that organic matter. An important part of that organic matter is nitrogen. Um, so that's what the plants like to utilize. They need that nitrogen so that they can eat the carbon. And the carbon is what makes them grow. Like their number one goal in life is to eat carbon. <laughs> and so in order to do that, they need, they need nitrogen. So microbes are also a very big source. And as you found out uh, recently, we discussed that paper and lab, the microbial biomass might be some of the most important components of, of soil yeah. carbon uh, because that is what takes uh, the longest time to, to break down in the soil. Right. And that blew my mind to really put that into context and think about what that actually means, which again, we keep foreshadowing. We're going to get to that part of it, but this is so much a story of carbon, no matter which way you look at it, you're either using stuff to get at it or it's something that's part of you that's being broken down and put back into it, you know. Exactly. Return from whence we came. Right. <laughs> okay, all of that comes from plants because, like you said, plants are grabbing carbon dioxide out of the air, breaking it apart and fixing that carbon into it. So they're the inputs. But besides the obvious of them dying and, and breaking down directly into the soil, there's a lot of other ways plants are, are interacting with that soil interface. And one of the wildest ones to me are those exudates you mentioned. Right, right. What's that all about? So plants, you know, they need roots to get their nutrients. And as a part of, uh, sometimes they might have like a mycorrhizal fungi that they're associated with. Those exudates are what they're leaking to the fungi in exchange for the increased root area, so they have more area to grab nutrients. Um, so those same exudates also don't all get consumed by the fungi, and other bacteria and other microbes in the soil also really like to eat that. 
And the area of uh, highest microbial activity is definitely in the rooting zone. So that's really where the most change is occurring in uh, soil carbon and nutrient cycling in general. It's just in that top five to 10 centimeters of the soil. Wow. That's not a lot of area. <laughs> it's not a lot. But I mean, a surface, like mass volume ratio, that's a lot of stuff yeah, going and on. Yeah, there's still deeper in the soil, plenty of storage occurring, but there's just not a lot of that microbe. You know, the, as you go down deeper, there's less and less microbial activity and less roots as well. Right. So these plants are making these carbohydrates, which they're putting into other molecules that then they can exude to feed other things or to access nutrients themselves. And that's basically a soup then that the microbial community is going gaga over, just eating up like crazy, right? Yeah, exactly. And then as the microbial turnover happens, you know, the microbes eat that, they grow up and they die. Then other microbes also can eat them as well. So it's really a whole entire, you know, food web below ground. That no one sees. It's microscopic, yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously this is not your specialty and... and you know, we've dabbled, our department dabbles in it decently, but when you think about diversity of a system like that, I mean, they're finding more and more that it's not just like a handful of players. It's, it's like literally a Serengeti worth of organisms, right? Or am I just Yeah, no, yeah, there's definitely, I would say the majority of the microbes below ground we, we haven't identified yet. Yeah. It's insane to think about what they call it, like uh, genetic or taxonomic units of DNA or something like that, where they blast the sample and they're like, well, these chunks are different enough that we think we can say something about like a taxon system here. Right. And they try to, that's at this point, they really are more looked at as like groups of microbes that do certain things. Um, Yeah. They don't really know, you know, how different they actually are. Yeah. And and what even spatial context there might be for that. But it's just bonkers to think that plants are just shunting carbon that they're taking as gas and what they aren't building new plants out of, they're shunting that down underground and feeding this entire system from the energy of a star <laughs> many, many millions or miles away. I don't know what the unit of measurement. One AU. Um, yeah, and so it's not like they're just giving it away for free. I mean, uh, you know, some of the exudates are like to help the root move through the soil, like yeah. to lubricate it so it can move through the soil easier. But they de- that's definitely what they're giving up in that mycorrhizal association, which uh, we're finding out is more and more and more important for, you know, plant growth at those mycorrhizal associations. Yeah, and ancient too. I mean, I just talked to uh, Sandy Hetherington, and he was saying, I mean, that's something that's been in place since plants came onto land, or even when right. before then, potentially. So it's definitely shaped the system through time. And then here we are going like, oh, I think I can understand some of this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I can kind of see why you're saying like carbon cycling, right? And so there's carbon going from the atmosphere down into the soil in one form or another. It's being deposited there as dead or decaying or released exudated materials. And so that's where this idea of like a pool or a sink comes from. It's a large way in which CO2 gets taken out of our atmosphere and deposited where it's not interacting with exactly solar rays and stuff. And then the cycle part of it is when microbes eat it. As part of that, they respire CO2, um, so that will go back into the air. Um, plants also lose some CO2 oh, through yeah. the roots, so there's definitely heterotrophic and autotrophic respiration coming yeah. out of the soil. So then, you know, some of that does return back to the atmosphere, obviously. 
Right. So it's this flux. This is there's some areas or times or situations where exactly. more is going in than is being released, and then there's other times where it's a major component of the release of it into the atmosphere. Yeah, especially when areas are disturbed, you know, by a, a wildfire and vegetation is cleared. Uh, agriculture definitely causes a, a you know a lot of oxidizes a lot of the soil biota when they till the soil. Um, so disturbance definitely accelerates that the loss of CO2. But in natural ecosystems, typically soil would serve as a sink rather than a source. Wow. So really, anthropogenic activity or, or major disturbances in one form or another are what tip the scales in a lot of cases? I mean, obviously, naturally, it will happen. Yeah. I mean, there's happen. landslides and things that yeah. happen naturally. So, yeah. But, yeah, uh, anthropogenic factors definitely increase uh, the release of CO2 from the soil. Huh. Makes you think a lot about our gardening practices sometimes. <laughs> well, on that scale, it's sure. pretty minimal. Right. And, you know, the rest of your lawn is sequestering a lot more than your garden is losing. That's true. We hope. <laughs> I'd be willing to put money on it, but but I don't know for a fact. No, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> it depends how big your garden is. Really, it is really interesting to think about this as a dynamic system. And that's why I would assume a lot of cases like soil loss and erosion and stuff are compounded not only just from the actual loss of sediment in, in arable land, but also just that disturbance element and what it's doing unseen to the naked eye. Right. It can be detrimental to a lot more than just the immediate area. Yep. So, okay, you've sold me on why this became <laughs> a, like a, sort of a, a modus of operation for you is to try and understand the system and it just seems daunting i gotta admit i look on at some of the stuff you guys have to do and the calculations and the the weird unique techniques that i'm not used to uh how do you go about answering some of your questions i mean what do you okay let's start at the beginning actually what do you do what's your area of research and, and we'll talk about how it plays out uh i have basically two different projects going on both somewhat related i study prescribed fire and how that interacts with an invasive grass called uh, Microstegium uh, stillgrass. Yeah. And I studied the interaction between that fire and the grass to see how it impacts tree seedling mortality. And then a separate project that looks at prescribed fire without the invasive grass and how that affects soil carbon cycling. Wow, so yeah, kind of bridging that gap between what's going on above ground and how that might have some effect on what's going on below ground. Yeah, Vice versa, yeah. I would say the first one is probably more important for, I guess they're both important for management, but what forest managers are really interested in is, are these prescribed fires meeting our management goals, which in eastern forests is oftentimes, uh, especially it's Shawnee, is oak hickory. They're trying to get oak hickory to become dominant again. Uh, so they're really interested in that type of research to, mm. so they know with how worried they need to be about this invasive grass that's basically taken over large portions of that forest and yeah. many other eastern deciduous forests as well. The pictures you've shown far surpass anything I've seen to date, but it's it's pretty remarkable what Japanese stiltgrass can accomplish in the right climate. Yeah, I know in some areas people might only see it along roadways or along trails and you know creeks and stuff because it travels really well in waterways. Uh, but there are some areas of the country where you might see a couple hundred acres continuous, so that's all still grass. Dang. So in some areas, it, it is a potential uh, yeah. you know, problem. Yeah, and I know this isn't a big point of your research, but it is interesting to think about what we've already now learned about 
plants interacting with the soil and how major shifts in the diversity of the plant life could probably elicit some major responses in the in the soil environment. Exactly. Plant soil feedbacks. We can uh, guess that's what we're going to discuss here ultimately, <laughs> what Matt's hinting at. But yeah, absolutely. The plants can have huge feedbacks with the soil. Uh, and stillgrass, in fact, does take advantage of plant soil feedbacks to improve things for itself. Uh, and that's how it is able to grow so well in some of these areas especially in nutrient-poor areas, uh, that's where it does really well. Uh, like quite a few invasives are very good at taking over nutrient-poor soils. Yeah. So basically, your typical forest is made up of a bunch of different forbs and shrubs, uh, but there's a lot of area that's not just continuous plants. You know, you can walk through it, and it's not just all shrubs. Obviously, some areas will be. Yeah, grand scale. Yeah, on a grand scale, you can see some of the ground. You know, you can see the surface litter. Um, but it's in these invaded areas, it's basically a pure blanket of green stilt grass across the bottom of, this, of the forest floor. You don't see any leaves. It actually kind of looks nice, to be honest. <laughs> uh, <it's, laughs> everything's green, not just, yeah, yeah. Not just the trees. <laughs> and, but, but what it does is it puts a whole lot more roots into the ground, uh, even though they're very shallow roots. And it really speeds up nutrient cycling, wow. like, particularly like nitrogen and potassium which are two of the main macronutrients. Yeah, big ones. Um, so what it does is it really it takes up a lot of nitrogen. Its leaf material is, is really nitrogen-rich, but then it also is good at reallocating that nitrogen below ground when it senesces. And so it's basically taking up all the nitrogen and holding it in its leaf materials during the growing season, and then at the end of the year it lets it all back into the soil. It also germinates very early in the season before the native vegetation is really germinating. Oh. So it's holding that those nutrients during the growing season and limiting the native vegetation from acquiring those nutrients. Wow, that almost sounds sinister. If we were gonna write, <laughs> if we we're gonna put some agency on it, but that's just a plant being a plant in a place it didn't originate. Right, and so that would be an example of a positive so soil feedback because it is improving the nutrient quality of the soil. It oftentimes will build carbon at the same time just from all the organic matter that's being introduced from the thick blankets of stillgrass. Yeah. But that's an example where a positive feedback actually has a negative effect. Right. It's a, uh, Yeah. It's not a value judgment when we say it. It's just a directional sort of response. And so, you know, a lot of those nitrogen-fixing invasive plants or the alleliopathic plants, yeah. that's, they use, like, similar strategies where they're just, you know, edging out the native competition. Yeah, yeah, and doing it pretty effectively in a lot of cases. But it's fascinating to think that the battleground, so to speak, is the soil environment where this is happening, and it's competition for acquiring things, but then also battling in the sense of it's, it's chemical warfare. Yeah, exactly. Wow. See, plants are not boring. <laughs> Soil is not boring. It's a war zone down there. <laughs> Do you sometimes sit in the field and just hear millions upon billions of microbes screaming and yelling? And... Oh, I'm usually listening to comedy podcasts, so <laughs> I think they're hearing me laughing out loud more than anything. That's good. Makes you look uh, unapproachable. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go near the laughing man. <laughs> It is always funny when I've been, you know, laughing out loud for several minutes and then all of a sudden some horseback riders come out of nowhere. Yeah. It's like, oh, how you doing? Yeah, people definitely hear me talking to myself and singing to myself and being a weirdo in the woods. 
Uh, that's fun. So how do you tackle this kind of work? Where do you even begin with a, a medium that, again, you can't put goggles on, you can't see really well with the naked eye? It's not readily accessible. What do you do? Well, most of my, like, as far as sampling, you just got like a little metal tube that you stick in the ground, and when you pull it out, you can slide the soil sample out. You usually segment it into different different depths. Hmm. But yeah, sampling, it's easy. You know, there's a whole lot of processing that goes on to get that soil pulverized into a fine powder. And then we yeah. do, you get this, your test done at the same place I do. We just wrap them up and give them some of your tests before us, luckily. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But that's probably the easiest part of it. He's just putting it into, the, into a machine. Right. Yeah, it's a lot of sieving and crushing soils, basically. And then you wrap them up in little tinfoil packages. How do you get at something like respiration, though? I mean, like you said, the major way that carbon's leaving the soil then is microbes are eating it and breathing it out like we are, like in yep. the process. Exactly. I mean, how do you get at that? Uh, there's a few ways you can do it. The way that we use in our lab is we have that the Lycor machine. Um, it's basically a infrared gas analyzer, mm. and it's like a little container that you, you install PVC collars in the ground, and then you can just set this machine on top of that PVC collar, and it just reads the amount of CO2 that's coming out of the soil. Jeez. So yeah, you do that a whole bunch of times, you know, for two years. Yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, that's one way. You can also take them back to the lab. If you freeze your samples right away, you can take them back to the lab and do like incubation experiments and stuff like that in the lab. So you literally measure the soil breathing. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That makes that little thing that I see sitting around the lab way cooler yeah, <laughs> than the, it looks. The thing that costs like as much as a cheap new car. <laughs> yeah, very true. I was working on one of those today, feeling guilty about how much I wanted to smash it. <laughs> but dang, so it's a lot of indirect or, well, I mean, they are direct measurements, but a lot of different ways of trying to figure out how much is going on underneath the soil at any given time. So where does fire really start to factor into this? Because that uh, is, is a big component of what goes on or should have been going on naturally in areas like this. Yeah, definitely. Well, wildfire really has a huge effect on it because that can get so hot that the heat from the fire penetrates a fair ways into the soil. You know, I mentioned before that top 10 centimeters is the busiest area of the soil. So if you have a you know, wildfire going on that's getting up to like 1,000 degrees, that's going to penetrate down into the soil and kill off all of the microbes as well as burn all of the root material that's in there. And then that combusts everything and, and you know, sends it into the atmosphere. Um, so that's where soils can become a huge source of carbon, CO2. Burning them Yeah. to, to release all of that. Wow. Um, so prescribed fire, one of the other management purposes of that is to reduce fuel loading so yeah. that if a wildfire were to come through it's a much milder fire so in you know you're doing these prescribed fires at the right time of year usually when there's still some moisture on the ground like late fall or very early spring so you're controlling the conditions of the area you're burning so you end up with a much milder fire especially you know the stuff that i measured the fires were very mild you know not even getting up to the boiling point in, in most cases wow i think typically they were around like 80 or 90 uh, centigrade, so huh. not very intense. Yeah, trying to make an equation between a prescribed fire method for management practices and for the purposes of restoring something in the ecology and then the massive sterilizing events of some wildfires, it's really not on the same magnitude whatsoever. 
Yeah, not even close. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people have seen a grassland prescribed fire. Yeah. And those are some pretty big fires going through the, you right. know, those, those flames are pretty big, particularly in stiltgrass invaded areas. The litter stays very moist, very green late into the season. Mm-hmm. So if they're burning it late in the season, there's still a lot of green vegetation and you get very mild fires just because there's so much moisture. Conversely, for burning in the spring, it's just after winter, so everything had melted. So yeah, you're never getting those. It's not the same as, as a when they're burning a grass field. Yeah. It's, you know, the flames might get up to a meter tall, but I think on average in my plots, they were probably 50 centimeters. Right. But again, more things to think about in terms of the dynamic nature and probably, I would guess, heterogeneity of what's going on with soil carbon from habitat to habitat, block to block. You know, oh, absolutely. Region to region, just even based on what vegetation's there. That's that's a lot to unpack. For sure. <laughs> and and obviously you mentioned a lot of this is being done for restoration or at least to manage the forest and bring back oak hickory. That's a declining forest type in our area at the expense of, you know, sugar maple and hackberry, which is more mesic wet forest. And, and so I would imagine then seeing how the plant communities can affect sort of the microbe communities, which affects soil carbon, that also feeds back into like the fire dynamics too, like you said, with how hot it gets, how much it gets burned. And I can see there kind of being like a tipping point where it's extremely hard to come back after a certain amount of time. I would, you know, basically once the plants start coming back is when the microbes will start coming back. Yeah. For the most part, they need those plants there for their food sources. Hmm. Wow. And just to think about when people say, oh, what use does it have? Oh, the chestnut, we lost that, but nothing major happened. It's like, you don't even know what was going on beneath the soil. It sounds like the communities just really inform one another. And, and to think about, again, what you could be losing when you're losing any species and not really knowing what is being lost at the same time. Yeah, definitely. And you know, also, you know, research has shown that species diversity has a big effect on these plant soil feedbacks. Different species have different groups of bacteria and microbes that prefer that species. So when you have a lot of different species in the area, you also have a lot of different types of microbes and a lot of different microbial strategies going on. Yeah. Um, all of which can, you know, increase that nutrient cycling and that can increase soil carbon storage as well. Right. Okay, so when you say storage, though, and then you kind of draw the connection to what the microbes are doing with all the carbon the plants are giving them, where does that storage component come from? I mean, what is it? I, I hear certain terms being tossed around. One of them I hope we touch on, but what is the storage part of this component? Where is it staying? The storage part of it comes from a variety of things. Some of it is more labile sources of carbon, which would be basically the plant material that's still down like there. The of plants. Yeah, so still like particular organic matter. Um, is typically considered to be more labile. That gets used up a little bit quicker than some more recalcitrant forms of carbon. Those more recalcitrant or the slower cycling carbons are what's really important for carbon sequestration. And the jury's still out on what's most important. Um, soil science is definitely a little bit farther behind than a lot of other sciences, mm. uh, even though it's plenty has been found out. But what the current research is shifting towards is the real important part of that storage is this microbial uh, necromass. Yes, there it is. All right. <laughs> I was um, waiting for that word. I so, love it. Yeah, that's a very heavy metal word. Yeah. So necromass is just the dead biomass of, of microbes. 
So microbes are very small and they can become protected by clay minerals in the soil. Clay minerals on the microscopic level have a lot of surface area. There's lots of ways for things to get trapped inside of the, of the mineral and basically protect that, you know, the necromass from getting eaten by other microbes. So it basically becomes physically protected by the soil. Wow. And so that's what a lot of research is starting to find out. Previously, we thought that it was more like the C to N ratios that was really important for carbon storage. Um, but it's looking more and more likely that it's actually this physical protection that's the most important aspect for sequestering carbon. Jeez, what a weird interaction between a living element and an actual element. <laughs> yeah. That's really strange to think that that's a huge component of how much CO2 isn't going, or carbon at least, going back into the system. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Huh. That's a bit mind-blowing, actually, to think about. <laughs> okay, so this is really intense because it's it's the positive feedback loop of, of kind of carbon coming from the atmosphere going into the soil, but you also said there's, there's negative feedbacks, too. And we mentioned a little bit of how disturbance can be a big release of this, but what, what are some of the negative feedbacks between maybe a plant and, and soil carbon? Uh, some of the negative feedbacks, maybe not specifically directed at soil carbon, but some of the negative feedbacks from plants to the soil could be when you have like big monocultures forming in an area, like agriculture, I think yeah. that's one example I can think of, or even, you know, stiltgrass, yeah. um, it does form, even though there's lots of, you know, the big trees aren't affected by stiltgrass. Some of the seedlings are, but, you know, when you get a, a lot of the same species in an area, um, just like any other animal that gets overcrowded, uh, disease can move in. So you can get a lot of pathogens that build up in the soil. If you have consistently the same type of plant, pathogens know there's a huge source of the plant that they like to infect. So they can build up in the soil and then that can have you know negative effects on the soil then because pathogens that are going to affect the growth of plants you know, yeah. over, overpopulating that area. Um, so that's really the biggest negative plant soil feedback that I can think of. Right. And even just from a carbon standpoint, it is interesting to think about. We, we don't ever think about the other side of what plants then do with the carbohydrates they make. They have mitochondria. They burn carbohydrates to build more plant. They go through cellular metabolism, not unlike what we do. And so... Oftentimes, especially under certain situations, it can be even more intense. You get a lot of respiration then coming out of the roots and, and dumping some right, of that. Right, right. Circumventing the storage aspect of it, too, I would assume. Can't confirm that, but <laughs> that may be, might be the case. Yeah. <laughs> I know. A lot of this is to me just being like, well, if I put this together in my head, <laughs> kind of makes sense. And then you sit down with someone and they're like, no. No, it doesn't. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be people out there that disagree with some of the things that I said, but... But, I mean, again, like you said, soil science itself is, it's in its early days. I mean, really, in terms of what we've been able to do only recently, it's it's got a, a big exponential growth curve coming, I would assume. Yeah, and it's from one paper to the next, the results can be completely different. You yeah. Know? So, you can always find papers that say prescribed fire is horrible for carbon storage. Other papers might say it improves carbon storage, and a lot of them say doesn't do anything for carbon storage. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's definitely a need for a lot more research in, right. in, the, in you know, a lot of soils areas. But I think on more of like an opinion, an educated opinion side of things, do you think it just has to do with the fact that all of the, the factors that contribute to what's going on underneath the soil 
are dynamic and it's going to be pretty different in a lot of different spots. And coming up with general rules in a system like that, as anyone who studies ecologies knows, can be kind of difficult. Yeah, especially on a large scale. You're always, you know, we know what's going to go on in a very small scale. That's easy. You know, yeah. I can tell you that every one of my plots, what's going on in the soil, <laughs> but those vary quite a bit, even just within my own research area, which yeah. is you know, all within one forest type. So you can imagine... You know, a rainforest is going to be a lot different than a boreal forest. There's a large range of what can yeah. be happening below ground. And that's another great point to bring up is just like geology is really kind of one of the major cores in influencing this climate is going to play a huge role in all of this. How hot it is, how wet it is. That's a major factor in determining what's going on with the soils, right? Absolutely. Especially the moist part of it. You know, microbes really need a fair amount of moisture. They don't like drought. Uh-huh. Um so that can have a, a big effect depending on how hot things get uh, in the coming years. Yeah, and I mean, think about how hot things are in the desert, how dry things are in the desert, and what that quote-unquote soil looks like most of the time. And then think about going to somewhere like southern Appalachia, which is a temperate rainforest. And yeah. I, in some places, couldn't scrape down to the mineral soil. Right. <laughs> so... Everything in between. Yeah, that's exactly how the forests out west were, too. You can step into a hole and you're, you know, up to your waist and litter. Yeah, it's amazing. Really a new appreciation for how that process plays out. But in your own research, I know we're still in the process of writing and, and analyzing, but is, are there any things that you can kind of take away at this point? Any big revelations about prescribed fire in Oak Hickory forests in southern Illinois? Yeah, I, um, especially on the, the stilt grass and fire interaction, I know a lot more information about that than the second part where I'm looking at the carbon cycling, um, but they'll feel they'll probably be pretty similar. What I'm finding is that the prescribed fire down there is, is pretty mild. Um, they're burning things at times of year to control the fire and keep it mild. So down there, it looks like the fire is not really having any negative impacts on, especially this interaction with stilt grass, a, a lot of Research has found fire to have increased intensity when it's burning in invaded areas with still grass. What I'm finding out is over the larger scale, my plots, even though it's all in Shawnee, they span like three different counties. So they're <laughs> yeah. kind of all over the place. But it looks like over that larger scale, still grass tends to occupy wetter areas that don't burn as well. So I'm not really seeing any difference uh, in mortality from fire from the interaction with still grass, but there is evidence that still grass probably is having some sort of competitive effect on tree regeneration, whether it's forming like a physical barrier from seeds reaching the soil to germinate, or if it's actually just out competing them, you know, growing wise. Something's definitely happening because my invaded areas have far fewer natural regenerating seedlings than yeah. the invaded areas, yeah. I mean, that could be a topic in and of itself for another time, but I think overall, in the grand scheme of things, you know, climate change is this giant global issue. It's something that had to happen on the national scale, but for anyone listening that kind of wants to get fired up or is thinking about soil conservation and soil carbon sequestration, I mean, is there anything the average listener can, can do to kind of contribute to a better, or at least a, a less uncertainty about how to deal with carbon and and dealing with soils and, and to do better in that process or is it just too hard well, to say well, besides no disturbance i mean one huge thing you can do is to be active uh like in your community when there's talks uh, issues come up about prescribed burning yeah 
people in especially the western U.S. are all too familiar with the horrible wildfires and how bad those can be. The, jump, the government has to jump through a lot of hoops to burn public land. So you get a lot of people that don't like fire. You get a lot of people that don't like to see the burn marks on their trees, so they don't want the prescribed fire. Um, you get a lot of people out there with weird points of views that are, are going to these meetings and saying, we don't want you to burn this stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, so if, it would be great if people could go out there and say, please burn this stuff. It's good for the soils, good for the environment, it's good for all the wildlife. Yeah. That goes a long way in mi- mitigating these wildfires. And then at the same time, you're also helping build healthy soils that are going to sequester carbon. And that's like our number one hope of, <laughs> for, for fighting climate change is putting it in the soil. Uh, I know science is working as hard as possible to come up with other methods to do it, but we already have a real great one and it's growing all over the world. Yeah. And we're not treating soils very well, are we? I mean, you, you've done enough teaching to kind of have a grasp on worldwide the picture for soils that we've probably taken it for granted too long, too much, too often. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, another thing you could do is donate to people that are trying to save the rainforest because that's a <laughs> huge issue. Um, you know, all that slash and burn agriculture or like clearing land for livestock. Uh, it's just like wildfires, you're releasing tons of carbon into the atmosphere. So that's another way that you could help if you really wanted to go the extra mile. Yeah. So good insights, man. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. People want to find out more about you or get in touch with you. I mean, you're not terribly active on social media from what I can see, but... Yeah. You can send me a, a letter. <laughs> it has to be by donkey or by pigeon, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, I really don't have any social media that. And that's okay. You're probably a lot less stressed than most people as a result. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, thanks for talking with us. This is fascinating stuff. Uh and, I mean, every time we talk about soils, I learn something from you, and I think a lot of people can say the same today, so thank you. Awesome, man. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, great to finally have you on. Really interesting stuff, really important stuff. We really got to uh, do better by forest health, we got to do better by soil health, and really just start considering soil and carbon stocks and all of those things that can affect us, especially with the way we treat our local landscape. I thank Ron for taking time to talk to us. We're all busy folk in the lab and I, I just I know what his workload is like so it's always great when we can sit down and uh, have a nice relaxing chat about some of the stuff that we work on day in and day out. Again thank you everyone for listening. Special thanks goes out to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash plants. Our latest producer on the podcast is Brandon. Big thanks to Brandon for helping make this show what it is and a big thanks to all of our patrons over there if you want to go check that out. Again it's patreon.com slash plants. Also, plenty of t-shirts still for sale. You can customize, pick your own style, pick your own colors, and choose from a variety of different logos and fun stuff like that. That's teespring.com slash stores slash plants, and a portion of every purchase is being donated to the Rainforest Trust. That's it for this week. Do not forget to check the show notes for both my Southern California Horticultural Society talk on the 11th and the Theodore Payne Foundation talk on the 12th. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.